Hey guys, Bear Grylls here, just to say, super excited for Charles Thorpe's podcast coming soon. You guys are going to love this. What a great guy he is and so many great stories. So enjoy these and remember, above all, never give up. Now, I personally believe that there's nothing better than a great adventure, whether it's to another country or into the backyard. It can have an amazing ability to change not just the way that we see the world, but also the way that we see ourselves. That is exactly what you're going to hear about from our incredible guests. On Great Adventures, I'm going to be hanging out with actors, athletes, thought leaders, and of course explorers, some old friends, and some new, to discuss how being adventurous benefited their lives. My name is Charles Thorpe. For over a decade, I've been chasing down epic stories professionally from magazines and television shows, and now I'm bringing those conversations here. Ken Burns is without question one of the most prolific and compelling documentary filmmakers the world has ever seen. He has traveled across the globe examining our collective history, and in doing so, giving us an idea of where we come from. It was a pleasure to sit down with him once again to discuss his career, his latest doc, country music, and traveling around Nashville. Check it out. So we're going to start talking about country music yeah. in your new eight-part series for PBS. I'd love to hear about where this where this doc took you that maybe you weren't expecting and where you were expecting to go and really love to get. I have an idea that you're... The definition of adventure is sort of geographical. I, I think for this, the surprising place that we went was psychological. Mm. There is a geographical component, of course, across the country, and it is most interesting. But I don't think I was prepared. I don't think anybody who worked on it, the writer Dayton Duncan and co-producer Dayton Duncan and, and uh, Julie Dunphy, a co-producer, and I as the director-producer, um, realized it was going to be so emotionally uh, powerful for us. You know, we'd come off, or I'd come off, they weren't working on that series, the Vietnam uh, Project, and that seemed to have taken us through the ringer emotionally, and so you figured you're kind of immune to that. And so country music, you know, you're always having to justify why you're doing it, because it's sort of often, by many people, looked down upon or sort of isolated into some lower 40 Acreage that that somehow isn't as cool as as other musical forms. When in fact, it's the one of the parents of rock and roll, and has always had sort of porous borders with all kinds of music. The songwriter Harlan Howard said it was three chords and the truth. So three chords means it doesn't have musical sophistication and elegance the way classical or some parts of jazz do. But the truth part is a really important part. It's dealing with elemental things that we all deal with joy of birth, sadness at death, falling in love, trying to stay in love, losing love, being lonely, seeking redemption, missing somebody. It's, it's, these are real things. And because it's so hard to deal with that four-letter word love, we sort of make jokes about country music. So to me, I think as we, as we mastered the narrative and exposed ourselves to the very best of it over the t- complicated 20th century and into this... Uh, we just sort of were unprepared for how much we were moved by the stories, how much our audience coming into the editing room when it was unformed were blown away. I had a guy who said, man, I like all your stuff, but but country music? (laughs) And I just said, well, just, you know, hang in there. And we were doing a four-day-long screening, you know, episode one in the morning, talk, eat, episode two in the afternoon, talk, eat, 
rinse and repeat. So Thursday afternoon, we're done. This guy was a puddle, <laughs> you know, and he was, he, he just, I mean, still looks at me with that kind of haunted thousand yard stare, which you'd expect from watching Vietnam. Right. But the power of country music is it touches these things that are common to us all, kind of universal things, truths that happen. And that's, that was a landscape, that was a geography that I hadn't expected. It was an adventure that I went on. I was not prepared for how much open-heart surgery I'd have to experience. Hmm. I think I had the pleasure of being a part of that round that you did for the Vietnam doc, and that was, like you said, emotionally taxing. But what I loved about that that work and what I love about all your work is the breadth that you're able to take with the subject matter. For that doc in particular, you were able to offer perspectives that hadn't been seen before. Right. I haven't had the chance to see this one yet, but I can only imagine... Hmm what you were able to tackle in the genre that hadn't been tackled before and what did you find in that search? So where Vietnam is emotionally taxing, this is emotionally adding, Mm. right? It's, It's a dividend because it's really powerful. So people die in this film of a broken heart. They're not slaughtered on the battlefield or accidentally have bombs dropped on them or whatever. So it's a, it's a different kind of emotional stuff. Um, what we were able to do was sort of put our arms around what seems to be almost a Russian novel of just amazing characters, some of them overcoming just unbelievable poverty, not just from the Depression. There are people born in the Depression. But before that and after that, I mean, Dolly Parton's father paid the guy who came into their holler in East Tennessee to deliver her with a sack of cornmeal. That's mm-hmm. Dolly Parton, who feels kind of about as modern as you can get. And so we were able to dive deep into this thing and, and find that we were following not just biographies of people, that's obvious, not just songs that sometimes you know, were played generation after generation after generation. So uh, just to give you one example, Jimmy Rogers writes a song called Mule Skinner Blues. Um, uh, Bill Monroe, the father of bluegrass, plays it at the Grand Ole Opry, Maddox Brothers and Rose, a kind of proto-rock and roll band in the Central Valley of California. And then Dolly Parton herself uh, plays it on the Porter Wagner show as she's, as she's up and coming, sings it. And it, it's a great sort of heirloom that's passed down through the episodes of our series. But it's also about words and songwriting and who gravitates to what place and how words in this music that seems at first elemental is elemental the way Shakespeare's elemental. It's elemental the way a haiku, the Japanese poetry form, is elemental. That's where country music's power comes from. So it's the people, it's the songs, it's the um, the the words, it's the business, which has always been a part of it, and you can't ignore it. Um, it's, it's the places where it was. And so all of that is kind of the gift to us, and I hope the gift to our audience when we get to start, you know, playing it on September 15th on PBS. Absolutely. And it's also about the characters. You mentioned Dolly Parton. Um, Johnny Cash is another figure, obviously, that people are very familiar with. You know, again, with the time that you were allowed for this for this project, who were you able to dive deeper on that maybe hadn't gotten their time in past projects? Well, I, I think Jimmy Rogers, who's one of the sort of parents, the co-founders, if you will, of country music, he's not. I mean, the, the, a guy named Ralph Peer in 1927 recorded the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers. Their music couldn't be more different from one another. He's Saturday night, they're Sunday morning. You know, mm-hmm. they're about church and mother and family and God, and, and he's about you know, good times and bars and honky-tonks and stuff like that. And and yet this is all lumped together of this 
supposedly one thing called country music and that's only at the beginning and added to it so I think getting to know the Carters I think early Jimmy um, Rogers life and his full tragic death Hank Williams the hillbilly Shakespeare uh, all of these people even Johnny Cash who we mm. think we know the story um, we focus mostly on June's sort of him falling in love and leaving his first wife for June and her not wanting to marry him until he was clean and him getting clean and that's in there but it's the early life too the mother of Roseanne Cash is an important figure in our film uh, Vivian Libretto uh, who was you know had it was Johnny's first wife and had to sort of withstand you know he said he wrote I walked the line but it's really ring of fire mm-hmm. um, that's that's the story of what's going on when right. he leaves her for, for June and how hard it was on Roseanne and how hard it was on the wife and so all of these Merle Haggard I knew who he was, and I, you know, I grew up in the '60s, so Okie from Muskogee, which was became an anthem of the of the not pro-Vietnam but the anti-protest uh, folks, uh, was a kind of meta joke for us. We loved it, and then as you dive deep, you realize how central Merle Haggard, one of the greatest singer-songwriters ever, and we got him just before he died, and so he's there helping us appreciate Jimmy Rogers. He's there helping us appreciate the people in the next few episodes, and then his own story catches up to him, and he's also in the audience as an inmate at San Quentin when Cash comes through and performs. Such and a crazy he's, story. He's able to become who he becomes. You know, Emmylou Harris says, and Emmylou Harris is central in kind of re-helping, re-energize traditional country music in the late 60s, early 70s through her tutelage with Graham Parsons. It's another connection with it. But she said, you want to know what country music is? Just get any Merle Haggard record. I don't care which one. Any Merle Haggard record. And drop the needle on I don't care what song and then start from there. That's a great piece of advice. So, I hope everybody there, out there does but that. But there's other people like the Leuven brothers, this brothers harmony stuff that are helpful in influencing uh, the Everly brothers and therefore Simon and Garfunkel and 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 then Emmy Lou Harris herself falls in love with the Leuven brothers and she starts singing some of their songs and they repopulate. There's a sense of in country music that you're part of a family and maybe you are maybe it's the Williams family obviously Hank Williams died at 29 but his son Hank Williams Jr. is very much there wrestling with his legacy and creating his own and his daughter Holly is in our film too so they gave great things we got lots of the Cashes and the Carters uh, in our in our film but there's a, f- a family of the musicians and then more importantly than anything else there's a family of the fans that you can't go up to Frank Sinatra and pat him on the back and say, "Hey, man, that was a great set, Frank." You can't go up to Mick <laughs> I'd like Jagger to see what happened if you and did. And Mick Jagger yeah. said, I can't, "I can't believe the way you played Sympathy for the Devil tonight. That was terrific, Mick. Good job." <laughs> or you don't go up to Leonard Bernstein or Arturo Toscanini and say, "Maestro, wow, that was that, the way you handled the second movement was really great." But in country music, even if even if you're the best, mm. you don't get above your raisin. In fact, the last episode is called "Don't Get Above Your Raisin." That's like. Don't get too big to your, for your, you know, for your britches. Don't forget where you came from. And so all the country stars are available to their fans. Garth Brooks went to a fan fair one time, and where you know you go and you sit in a booth and you sign autographs and people line up for a couple of hours and then you're done. He signed for over 20 hours. Wow. He wasn't even invited to the thing. He went there and said, "These are the people who are buy. I will pay back." Yeah. And it, it's 
it's that sense and people come up to you and say I lost my mom today or I you know that song got me through this this the divorce I was whatever it is there's a country song for every emotion one of the things I like about the trailer that you have out right now is you talk about what everybody brought to country music as yes. well and where they came from and how that informed who they became as musician so I'd love to hear about maybe where you were surprised that someone came from or what they brought original to the, well, to the genre we inherit all of the bias anyway that oh it's white man's this you know it's white me well if you took all the people who deserve to be on the early Mount Rushmore the the Carter family AP Carter and Sarah and mother Maybell sister-in-law and uh, Jimmy Rogers and Bill Monroe who invented a whole branch of music bluegrass like Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and jazz invented bebop he invented bluegrass and then you take Johnny Cash so you have those five people every single one of them had an African American tutor who took their chops from here to way up there which is why they deserve to be on Mount Rushmore so all of a sudden you begin to ask questions you know when when uh, Ray Charles was given creative control over an album for the very first time in his professional life he did modern sounds in country and Western music and the number one hit in the summer of 62 is I Can't Stop Loving You. Mm. Charlie Pride, you know, has this voice from God. I mean, disc jockeys were playing it thinking he was a white guy and he wasn't. And then when they found out, oh, they're going to boycott his records. But, you know, he's the first artist to win the uh, CMA uh, Artist of the Year award twice in a row of any color, let alone, you know, how many number one hits he had as a country. So what, what we tried to do is tell the importance of breaking down how much the blues is central to, to country music as it is to almost every American art form. The way in which R&B and the blues and others fused together in the rockabilly era uh, to and the honky-tonk era to create what we now call rock and roll. So... You know, you got Rock Around the Clock tonight. Marty Stewart saying that's the epitome of a kind of 50s rock and roll stuff. Well, you got the Maddox Brothers and Rose 10 years later doing um, uh, Get get Up and Go, get it, something Get Up and Go. And he plays it, and there's the same guitar licks. And it's mm. 10 years before. And, and so there's no border. You don't need a passport to pass between this. You're not saying that only a certain kind of people are listening to a country station and a certain kind of people are listening to R&B. They're listening. I mean, Elvis's first record, first 45, has um, big boy crud-ups, uh, blues thing, That's All Right Mama, R&B hit, or, you know, regional hit, That's All Right Mama. And on the other side is this kind of souped-up, Elvis-ized Blue Moon of Kentucky, an old Bill Monroe song. <laughs> and, like, you know, I guess the R&B stations played That's All Right Mama, and the country stations played more of the Blue Get Moon. Get them all. The kind of, but you realize, you know... Um, it is recorded by Sam Phillips at Sun Studios. He said, very simply, I just knocked the shit out of the color line. Hmm. And so we tend to maintain the color lines. We're talking about music. Wynton Marsalis is in our film as is Elvis Costello and Jack White and others sort of commenting on how important it is to Paul Simon, understanding how important this is. And Wynton said, art tells the tale of us coming together. Like our civilization tends to devolve into tribal things, mm. us against them. But it's the art that reminds us is that we're all in together. So yeah. look look what's, you know, been a great country hit. Absolutely. The, no. Recently, which is, you know, a rap country <laughs> hit. That to me makes my heart sing. Our first partner in this is Hannah One. Breakthrough Nutrition Supplements with Ayurvedic and Bhutanese Medicine. 
I was first introduced to them a while back by climbing photographer extraordinaire Jimmy Chin. He handed me one of their Go Packs during a hang and I've been hooked ever since. They're always in my backpack, whether I'm hiking or just running around the city. Now they're offering our crew a special deal if you go to hanalife.com backslash adventure. That's H-A-N-A-H life.com backslash adventure. you mentioned sun studios there is a, a, a geographical yeah. element to these things you know we're in new york city right now there's if you were going to tell a punk story you you'd come here so tell me a little bit about where you went or or what places you were able to go or what places you were able to find that really informed what country so, music so is so the story of the country music is all over not just the american south but in lots of different places because in the early days every big radio station had a barn dance which was essentially playing hillbilly music it wasn't yet called country music and you know chicago WLS, the world's largest store, after owned by Sears Roebuck. Uh, Nashville had a, a barn dance that uh, was owned by uh, the National Life and Accident Insurance Company called WSM. We shield millions. There was a station in uh, Atlanta called WSB, Welcome South Brother. Uh, all of them had barn dances. The one in, in uh, Nashville got changed to the Grand Ole Opry after they cut from a classical recording or a classical live hookup to New York and somebody said well you've just been listening to Grand Old Opera now you're listening to Grand Old Opry and it's stuck and it's the longest running radio show in the history of of the country beautiful um it's a, it's a great story. So the music is born in lots of different places, in the Deep South, mixing with the blues, in Appalachia with string bands and kind of old um, uh, Scotch-Irish, uh, English ballads and stuff like that carried over from the old world. Let's also remember that the banjo is from Africa, meeting the fiddle. That's, that's where the musical instrumental Big Bang is, is the, when the fiddle meets the banjo, you get this sort of thing. So it's never been without an African-American uh, influence in it because the the um, the banjo is the fretless gourd that came over from Africa so Ralph Peer is a businessman who's been selling race records, meaning the blues. He's also been selling ethnic records, Chinese, Japanese, French, Polish, Romanian, whatever, and wonders if there's a niche for old-time hill country music, meaning <laughs> white Anglo-Saxon Protestant music. And he goes to Atlanta, and he's trying to find some race guys, and he, he, he uh, records this guy named John Carson, who changes his name to Fiddlin' John Carson, even though he's been a mill worker in a factory in Atlanta for for many, many years. He's from the country, and he plays a few songs, and he knows. They they're okay, they do okay, as do a couple of other records. And then finally, Ralph Peer goes to Bristol, Tennessee, in the far eastern corner of it. And so you got Atlanta, then you got Bristol, Tennessee, and he's gathering up all the stuff that's in the air in that intersection of Tennessee and Virginia. Bristol itself, its main boulevard, is divided in half. One side is Virginia, one side is Tennessee. Ralph is on the Tennessee side and records a lot of hillbillies, and he records the Carter family, he records Jimmy Rogers, and history is made there. But then... People start gravitating to Nashville. The centrality of the barn dance there, soon to be the Grand Ole Opry, means you can play on Saturday night and then travel around that area and get pretty far before you have to come out back to low-paying gig, better-paying gigs out on the road. Um, 
Shreveport's got a, a Louisiana Hayride. In Texas, they're minting all these great, you know, Ernest Tubb to Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and Chris Christopherson, all of the greatest <laughs> songwriters are there. You got Oklahoma that's giving you Garth Brooks and Reba McIntyre and Vince Gill. I mean, amazing human beings. And then Incredible. out in the Central Valley of California, you've got this sound that is from the dispossessed Okies and, and music friction and hard times are the go to creativity for a lot of these poor people in Appalachia and the deep south but also in uh, the Central Valley they're looked down upon and so these Okies Buck Owens and the Maddox Brothers and Rose and Merle Haggard and later Dwight Yoakam are trying to recreate that so you get northern uh, Appalachia and Kentucky and, and Virginia and you get a, a sound and you get stuff in the middle Appalachia you get southern Appalachia you get deep Dixie. So we're traveling all of those places yeah. to collect the people. They're all gravitating towards Nashville, and either they're accepting it or they're rejecting it and moving away. And the story is, you know, like Willie gets drunk at Tootsie's Orchid Lounge on Broadway one night because he just can't seem to make it. His songs are doing well. Crazy is the number one jukebox hit, but for somebody else, Patsy Cline. Mm. And he goes out drunk and lies down in the middle of Broadway thinking he's going to get run over. And he wakes up and everyone in great Southern courtesy have gone around him. You know, he was introduced at the Grand Ole Opry as Woody Nelson. So he goes back to his native Texas and now they love they've always loved him when he's yeah. been out on the road playing stuff simple and he tries to keep his head and he's, he's Willie Nelson the king of, of uh, country music and Chris Christopherson has got this road scholar he's at Cambridge or Oxford he's you know uh, a helicopter pilot he's graduated from West Point I mean he's you know he's gonna he's gonna go and be a teacher at West Point he goes you know what I think I wanna write country songs and his family disowns him and he goes down there he's a janitor at Columbia Records and and Johnny Cash sometimes lets him sit in, and he writes arguably the most literate. He's an English One of major. my favorites, yeah. I mean, William Blake is his hero. Shakespeare, I mean, knew this stuff, and he writes... Um, uh, me and Bobby McGee, because his producer, um, who we also interviewed, Fred Foster, says, you know, so-and-so has got a new secretary, and he thought her name is Roberta uh, McKee, and he thought she's, he said McGee, and they, everybody calls her Bobby. And so me and Bobby, he goes, there's a song for you. But he'd seen this Italian film by Fellini called La Strada, you'll learn in our film, and out comes one of the great anthems and then he sings it. He thinks he's got a bad voice. Not, his voice doesn't travel with and then Janis Joplin records it. Everyone thinks they have a bad voice um, but if, if you're Chris Christopherson I can't imagine you ever believe in that. That's crazy. And he's writing about the down and out people negotiating Saturday night and Sunday morning which is jazz is doing and R&B is doing and Sunday morning coming down which we really dive into one of his great songs of all times is really the the overlap between getting drunk on Saturday night and waking up and walking through the deserted town as you hear church bells and wondering about redemption and that is sort of all of country music in one song and and in one extraordinary artist. So we were pulled to all of these places. Mm -hmm. I interviewed Dwight Yoakam in in the Capitol Records studios at Hollywood and Vine, you know, in the places where those Central Valley people came and recorded, but not just them. The Beatles, other people, uh, went through those those studios as well, and to to do it. And we recorded most of the Nashville interviews in the studios of RCA and other places that were home to where all of this revolution in music took place over the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. We stopped 
in the mid 90s at Garth at his the peak of his popularity uh, Bill Monroe dies and then we follow the last few years of, of, of Johnny Cash across the millennium into 2002 and then we look we look in our outro to the current crop but we're in the history business and not gonna decide who's as good as Johnny Cash <laughs> Yeah, it's an impossible, it's uh, impossible, impossible comparison. I, you know, mentioned a little bit to you before. I'm, uh, I'm excited. I'm uh, planning a trip down to Nashville and Memphis, a road trip, and I'm excited to watch this and then sort of get some inspiration on where I'm going to go. Tennessee's flag, you know, has three stars in, in incorporated in a circle, and what they stand for is East Tennessee, Mid Tennessee, and West Tennessee. So as you take your road trip, you can travel down, you know, uh, the Blue Ridge Parkway and the Skyline Drive and pick up the Appalachian stuff and then you have to stop in Bristol Tennessee right and just see where this was born there's a great museum there and you'll get a sense of what's happening when the Carter family records with Ralph Peer and then a few days later in 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 the summer of 27 they record Jimmy Rogers the singing brakeman who brings the blues into all of this he it's really great and then start heading east you know you see this East Tennessee is where Chet Atkins come from East Tennessee is where Dolly comes from East Tennessee is where all these important seminal figures come from there's something in the water there yeah. and then you get to mid Tennessee and of course you got Nashville and Nashville I remember visiting Nashville in the mid late 80s working on my Civil War series I couldn't find anything to eat now it's impossible to get a bad meal it is so <laughs> young it is so hip it is so cool it is so much more than the Athens of the South as they originally called themselves and even more than Music City USA is just a, a, a one of these great places like right here where you just feel all this energy is going on and you have to do that. And then you go to, to West Tennessee, to the Mississippi River, and you have Memphis, this kind of you know, riverboat town out of which all of the sounds come up from the Delta, and it's mixing the blues. And that's the place where Elvis is going to go. That's the place where Johnny Cash is going to go. And by the way, if you want to know a proto-punk band, it's Johnny Cash's first band, which only knows three chords. And Elvis Costello says, he, I mean, they're like the earliest punk band, and I mean that as the highest compliment. Yeah. So maybe start off, uh, you know, uh, if you're thinking about punk and listening to that early Johnny Cash stuff that he's recording at Sun Records just after Elvis, who they kid himself, he called him the old old man, and he called it the shaky kid is what is what Johnny called Elvis. Oh, and we got that. home movies of these guys that we just discovered that no one's seen that are on the film. So you got to think, but then you got to f- go to the deep south and find out about Alabama and Mississippi where Hank and, and, and Jimmy Rogers are from. Got to go to Texas, which has produced more um, singer-songwriters of great note than any place, I think, and then out to the Central Valley of California, and, and we're going to continue our trip. We've done most of the East and uh, the Tennessee trip and rode in a bus the way that, that people do and got up before dawn. You know, someone once said that, you know, we don't get paid for playing, we get paid for traveling. Because it's so hard, the road is so hard. Yeah. We had a great time, and um, we're, we got one more big trip to do, which is uh, San Francisco to LA. But we're not we're not going to fly. We're going to go down through Bakersfield and Fresno and pick up that that sound that Dwight Yoakam helps to keep alive of Merle and of Buck and the Maddox brothers and Rose. I love that you guys are doing a tour around this movie, and uh, I'm uh, I'm so jealous of that experience. I might have added uh, a couple extra stops to my road trip personally. 
I think right now. That was a that was a great rundown. You mentioned that you're in the history business. I find myself a student of history. I think a lot of people do. You've had the ability to see a lot of places that people have you know haven't been able to go. I'd love to ask just where you send people to to really feel history. Yeah. I'm in the history business, but I'm not in the business in which history is the excavation of dry dates, facts, and events, meaning a quiz on Tuesday. I'm in the word that is mostly made up of the word story plus high, that that's how human beings connect to each other, and any story we tell is is history. And I've been so privileged in my professional life to visit these places. I walked over the Brooklyn Bridge today after I dropped my kids at school. We take the subway and then I walk back over. I hope to be able to have time to go back over the Brooklyn Bridge. So that to me is one of the great places like standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon. I also made a film on the history of the national parks and I can tell you about 10 or 15 places that you have to go to. It isn't bucket list stuff. I don't like the idea of bucket list. You just have to get up and go to the Grand Canyon. You have to go to Yosemite. You have to go to Glacier, you have to go to Arches, you have to go to Zion and Canyonlands, you have to go to Acadia in Maine, you have to go to the Smoky Mountains because that's right on the edge of where all this stuff is going on and you'll get there on your road trip because it's great. And a million other places in Alaska and Hawaii. I interviewed President Obama and Mrs. Obama on our film on Jackie Robinson. That was like a pinch me, what the hell am I doing? And a lot of times it's just going to an archive. Like, mm. you don't think this is something, but if you're piling through boxes of old prints at the Library of Congress or at the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond or at some place and you've spent weeks there filming or you've just driven eight hours to find one photograph that you're gonna, you know, pre-scanning days where you're gonna just go and film it and set up your lights and with the camera on the tripod and, and do it, you get to see the back end of stuff. You get to see the loading dock of places. And sometimes that's really helpful. I, I mean, one of the great moments is that we got up at 3 a.m. working on the national parks, and we were just we were using a compass trying to figure out when the angle, where the sun was going to come out. We'd go over here and go, no, I think it's over here. And then we, we finally get a place where we think is going to be the best place to get. The sun comes up. We get the beautiful dawn stuff. And then when it's light enough to actually see, we look down, and there's a little sign. The park service has said, good photo opportunity. <laughs> you know, we... <laughs> We had spent an hour, you know, raising around. So all of that Do you remember what park that was? That was, um, I think it might have been Grand Canyon, but it also might have been Bryce. Right. Yeah, just remember fumbling in the dark with your phone (laughs) and the flashlights, and then you go... Yeah, they've done the work for you. They've done the work. Oh, and, and my partner on that film, Dayton Duncan, said, if they ever on a national park map say, Inspiration Point go there. If they ever say artist point, go there because that's the place that has the best view of the entire place. Oh my god, I love that. And I also love that all these places are in America. And yeah. all, you know, the park system is an incredible project and an incredible triumph of, you know, just good stewardship. That's uh, exactly right. They are like they're the, the national parks are one of the greatest things we've ever done. If you think about it, for the first time in human history, land was set aside not for kings or noblemen or the very rich, but for everybody and for all time. So when people talk about them, the owner, I go, it's, they're your parks, mm-hmm. and you know, and they've been expanded from not just natural wonders that I mentioned, but also Gettysburg and Shiloh. These are places. So Shanksville, uh, PA, where Flight United Flight 93 went into the ground. So is a plantation 
plantation that shows not only the comfortable life of the plantation owner, but the life of the slaves who made that comfortable life possible because they didn't have to pay wages. Or places in the Great Plains, Sand Creek and Washita, where um, unarmed Native American women, old men, and children were slaughtered by U.S. cavalry. That's a National Park Service site, too, as is uh, Manzanar, where Japanese Americans were interned. I mean, we've said we can look at all of these stories. And so I think that's, that's part of the places that I've gone that have been so spectacularly transformative for me. I mean, everything in our life now is transactional. And, and yet, that's not what we want. We know that handbag isn't going to bring us any more happiness, that retail therapy lasts about as long as it takes to pay for it. But we know that we're seeking, because we don't have much time, something else, something transformative. And if everything is reduced to transaction, we're lost. But if it can be transformative, and I guarantee you walk across the Brooklyn Bridge, you cannot, this is the only bridge where the pedestrians are elevated above the traffic and they're in the middle. And by the way, this is spectacular work of art that's old Gothic towers with this new metal called steel, the, the towers in compression and the steel in tension with this spider web effect. I mean, you just watch. I, I, I fight my way through in the afternoon because it's jammed with tourists who are getting married there. Like mm -hmm. people from Korea are going and I've getting seen married. It. I've seen it many times. And you just go, oh my God, they're seeing it for the first time and their jaws are open. And you wonder what's the transformative power of art? Well, this simple mechanical thing. The way to get from Brooklyn to Manhattan and back again, which was when it was the subway, the, the, the suburb of, of Manhattan. Um, and when the ferries were unreliable, particularly in, in weather, and you just think it's a work of art. I, I mean, I've, I've been privileged in the subjects we've done to meet people mostly. That's the, the most important thing, obviously, in your life, in our life. But to be at places. My, my work doesn't permit me to go to other countries very much, and when I do, it's wonderful. But, you know, the good old USA, I know. Uh, pretty well, and there's nothing I like more, and I'm excited about your trip, than being on a road I've never been on. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Ken. It always is. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been great. Thanks for listening, guys. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe and leave a quick review on iTunes. Suggest it to a friend who could use a little travel inspiration. If you have a travel question or suggestion on someone I should chat with, just hit me up on my social channels at Charles Thorpe and at Adventure Podcast. New episodes will be dropping every Friday, so keep checking in for the next. Until then, safe travels. Conversations were recorded at Smile Radio, located in Smile to Go at the Freehand Hotel. 